Welcome and thank you for joining us here for the Bread of Life, a listener-supported program of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. If you were an unconverted Jew reading the Gospel of John for the very first time, and you were a Jew conditioned as Jews were in that day by the notions and language of the Greek world, you would not have a problem relating to and accepting the wisdom and insight of the first 13 verses of the first chapter of John. You'd accept the idea that the Word was God, and the Word came unto His own, and that His own did not receive this Word. All that would make perfect sense to your enlightened mind. But when you came to verse 14, all your intellectual sensitivities and spiritual proclivities would receive a strong slap in the face. For there you would read that that word, the eternal wisdom, became flesh and dwelt among us. What a blow this word of John was to the sophistry of his age. Leon Morris, another commentator, points out that Philo, the Hebrew philosopher, who had a great understanding, or probably of any Jew, had a greater understanding of Greek philosophy and Greek understanding and the Hellenistic world of anyone, and yet at the same time spoke to the Hebrews, that Philo, this Hebrew philosopher, uses the term the word over 1,200 times in his writings, and some of the times he uses it as a term to speak directly of God, and other times he uses it to speak of something that is compatible or is alongside of God but it's distinct from God. But the point here is that in the mind of the Jew living in John's day, the term word was associated closely to God. And in many cases, it was heard by them as a term that was said in the place of God or as a reference to God. So that was the Jewish concept of the word. And then you have the Greeks. And the Greeks also had an understanding of this term, the word, the logos. Heraclitus was one of the first to speak of this and bring this thought forward in Greek thought about 500 years before the time of Christ. And once he introduced it, it was held tightly by the Greeks of that day and age in the Hellenistic world. And to the Greeks, the word referred to the reason that ruled the universe, the reason that governed or was behind everything that took place. It was the term that was used to refer to the universal mind that guided all things. It was the principle of order that undergirded everything that existed. The word was the thing that guided all of history. It was the thing that passed over and somehow shaped the reason and concepts of men. And so men who had an understanding and conscience of what was good and men who had an understanding and their conscience of what was evil came to that sense of conscience, that sense of understanding because they were influenced and guided by the word. It was the governing principle of life. All of life Everything that you could see was somehow understood and ordered and structured by the Word. The Word was what kept the stars in motion. The Word was what kept the seas regularly keeping their appointed rounds when the tides would come in and the tides would go out. The Word was what established the fates of men. Everything was ruled by the Word. This was particularly a truth that was grasped and proclaimed and declared by the Greek Stoics, but it was a concept that was held by every common Greek and understood by every common Greek. And it was also a concept that was understood by the Jews who were living in the Greek world of that day. It wasn't like there's this line that was drawn, the Jews thought one way, the Greeks thought another way. There was a crossover here. And so this was their concept, the Greek concept of the word. It's possible then to see that a 
Jew or a Greek could come to this passage and they would already have established in their lives set notions of what the word meant. They could already begin reading it and in it they could begin putting in their own understanding. And as they read it, they would not necessarily have a difficulty with what they were reading in the first 13 verses. They could read it and not be surprised or not be shocked or disturbed by what they were reading because what they were reading, they could kind of put over it their own philosophy, their own worldview, their own understanding, their own conceptualization, and it wouldn't in any way offend them. It would somehow fit, or they could make it fit. They could provide their own interpretative scale to it all and embrace it all and not be threatened in their own understandings as they read these first 13 verses. They might even think they knew what they were reading about until they came to verse 14. The non-Christian Greek or Jew would read these first phrases appreciating that the word was a rational principle that ruled the ran the universe. They might even see it as a poetic way to refer to God himself or a term that was referring to deified majesty. They could accept it all without any critical blush. They could read this, and let's just go through it and see how they'd read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He or it was in the beginning with God. They wouldn't have a problem with that. They could embrace that. They could make that fit their philosophical framework, their religious conceptualizations. They could come to verses 3 through 5, and let's read those. Verses 3 through 5. All things were made through Him. And apart from him not one thing came into being that came into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Again, for them there is no surprise here either. The Jew could have no problem understanding that the word as a creative force, or the creative power, by their own teaching and through their own scriptures, they understood that God spoke and everything came into existence. So this doesn't challenge them. This is not a problem for them. The Greek himself thought that all the universe and all the principles of what we see today is the fruit and is sustained and comes into existence through the power of this reason, this universal mind. They wouldn't have a problem with what they read in verses 3 through 5. We'll skip over for a moment verses 6, 7, and 8 where we have a reference to John the Baptist. But they could come to verse 9 and there they could read... That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And once again, they wouldn't necessarily have a struggle with this idea either. That the word, this pronounced order, this universal mind, this reason is what illuminates our lives. This again was the Greek concept. That our lives are illuminated. We come to an understanding of our consciousness awakened by this universal intelligence that's reason or we call the logos, the word. They'd read verse 10 and they would understand this in 11 and understand as well. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And they would think to himself, well, this is the common story of every race and this is the common story of mankind throughout the ages. They're always rejecting the good wisdom and the good reason and the revelation of the truth and understanding and intellect of the world around us. In fact, they could pride themselves that they weren't like those individuals who ignored all the common wisdom of the ages, but that they received it and they understood it. And the Jew could pride himself that he obeyed the scriptures and he knew the scriptures and he read the scriptures. And the Greek could pride himself that he was of a higher philosophical order than the common man and of the Italians and of the Scythians around them and the barbarians because they embraced these things. But they could understand the idea that the word could come and men could reject it because that happens all the time. In verse 12 and 13, they could read, 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, as these people would read it, they understand this, that when individuals open themselves up to the word, the divine illumination, the universal reason, when they open themselves up to God, as the Jews would think, then God embraces them and takes them and accepts them and he gives his life to them. And so they could, in a sense, take that phrase and they could put a philosophical rendition to it. They could wrap it around in some kind of expression of poetic truth and they could embrace it and they could accept it and they could appreciate it. These verses could all be appreciated by the non-believing Jew and the non-believing Gentile alike. But then they would come to verse 14. They're reading it for the first time. They would come to verse 14 and all of a sudden they would know they had to go back and reread everything they had read. Because verse 14 is shocking to them. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And all of a sudden this word, this phrase, this term, the Word, is catapulted in their mind. This phrase grabs hold of them like a grubby, fleshy, crude hand. It slaps at their intellect. It assaults their pseudo-spirituality. It assaults their philosophical conceptions of God. It it interrupts their smug notions of eternity and their own sense of intellectual superiority because all of a sudden now the Word comes to this point where it becomes flesh. And the term flesh is almost a crude word. It comes from the Greek word karnis. It says the logos, that was this high and lofty phrase, the logos becomes carnis. We get the word carnal from it, fleshly. It means that this word came into physical human life. It became flesh and bone and blood and sinew and pulses and passions and the pulp of life. This word, God, majesty, universal reason, the sovereign influence that determines the fates of all created order became a human and a human with a name, Jesus. Now you see, if you were a Jew in that day and age or you were a Greek in that day and age, you would find this to be something that assaulted your senses. It would be a blow against all of your religious conceptualizations, all of your philosophical notions, all of your spiritual high-mindedness. All of a sudden, it would come crashing down into a man, into flesh and blood and bone. And that's exactly what it did to them. And as a result, they were forced to go back and reread everything they had read up to that point in time. Let me, just for a moment, make to you a little bit of application about this notion of the word becoming flesh. Particularly, John takes a term that was known to the Jews and that was known to the Greeks and that was embraced by the Jews and that was embraced by the Greeks, a term that was to them to some extent filtered into and shuffled into their own religious notions and one that they held in lofty esteem and one that they held at the highest range, at the highest point of all of their philosophies, of all the religions, the Word was at the pinnacle. And John takes this great lofty concept that they had raised up in the heavens above them and he brings it down to their feet as a man in the flesh and assaults them with it. And Let me make a few points of application here. And the first one is this. We need to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ did not come to make God more comfortable for people. He did not come to make God less threatening to people. There are a lot of people who like to give themselves to the life of Jesus Christ and explore His life. They're all about Jesus, 
because they think Jesus will be less threatening to them. He is kind of the kind, softer edge of God. But the truth is, Jesus did not come to make God more palatable or more comfortable or less threatening to people. Make sure that your thoughts of God are not simply formed to make life and God more comfortable to yourselves. Make sure that in your conceptualization of God that you're not simply trying to tame God or cage God so that he will fit into a philosophy, your man-made philosophy, and he will become inoffensive to you. He will not challenge you. He will not confront your life. There are all kinds of individuals who like to think about God. In fact, every man to some extent likes to conceptualize things about God. But they like to think about God in such a way that they can keep him at a comfortable distance. They like to speculate about God. I'm glad you joined us today to listen to The Bread of Life, a program of the International Discipleship Ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the local mission fellowship Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. Church Partnership Evangelism works to equip and engage followers of Jesus in the work of reaching lost people with the gospel and growing up new Christians in the faith. Our ministry is reflected in an indigenous missions training institute in the Amazon Basin that raises up young people to take the gospel back to the remote villages deep along the waterways of the Amazon. It's expressed in releasing teams of evangelist trainers, practitioners, and church planters in India, Indonesia, Colombia, Brazil, Tanzania, and Zimbabwe. We have works in over 40 different countries, and we're growing. If you want to be a part of reaching nations around the world by empowering a witness in each place, join us in our labors. Go to breadoflifeboise.org or traincpe.org to learn more. And please join us in our next broadcast. But until then, may God bless you.